You know, I think it's the first time I've had to do this. Last week I started a sermon. I knew there was no way I was going to finish it, so I just preached half a sermon. And uh, so today we're going to finish up another half of it. And it's uh, live up to your great, uh, live up to your name, live up to your name. And it's based on Philippians uh, fourth chapter verses two through five. And I want to tie up a loose end from last week. Uh, Maybe last week you were here and you noticed that our sermon did not tie into its title. Uh, There were a number of people that were mentioned in our scripture passage, uh, but we didn't give the meaning of their names. And this is kind of an old school thing, but in the old school, uh, in the 2,000 years ago, people understood the meaning of names. You know, Joe, they understood what Joe meant, Bill or whatever. Uh, But... In our culture today, people don't really know the meaning of their It's just another word, another name. They don't know the meaning behind the name. In fact, at the ministerial meeting, I shared this with the guys, and I said to them, hey, how many of you guys know the meaning of your name? Now, there were three others. I knew the meaning of my name, and I shared with them that, you know, my name is David, means beloved. Nancy means beloved. Amy means beloved. We are all beloved in our family. None of the guys, three other guys, they didn't know the meaning of their names. They had to whip out their phone. They had to Google the meaning of their name. I was disappointed with those guys. But they learned something new. If they didn't learn anything from my devotion, they learned the meaning of their names. <laughs> but uh, we want to get move on to talking about the people who are mentioned in this passage of Scripture and the meaning of their names. It's kind of, we'll find that it's kind of ironic. Philippians 4, verses 2 through 5. Now I want to plead with these two women, Euodia and Syntyche. Please, because you belong to the Lord, settle your disagreement. And I ask you, my true teammate, and some translations use the word yoke fellow, help these women, for they worked hard with me in telling others the good news. And they worked with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are written in the book of life. Always be full of joy in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice. Let everyone see that you are considerate in all you do. Remember, the Lord is coming soon. Now, as, as you remember from last week, hopefully you remember, that Paul was urging these two ladies in, in a very loving way to settle their differences. Uh, he enlisted other people in the church to help them, to assist them in settling their differences. And he wanted uh, people like Clement and, and someone he doesn't, doesn't mention by name, but he calls him the true yoke fellow. You know, when you think of the word yoke fellow, you think of a verse in particular, at least I do. Um, I think of a verse that says, uh, Jesus says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. And he invites us to take his yoke upon ourselves and to walk with him and to to pull together with him, to work together. But what do these names mean? And let me ask you this. How many of you know the meaning of your name? Can I see your hand? Okay. Most of you do. I'm I'm glad for that. Um, The question is, do you live up to the meaning of your name? Hopefully you've got a good name. Uh, but uh, the, the church there 
in Philippi, they had, they had a couple of ladies, and they, they knew the meaning of their name. You know, it was just automatic. Um, it wasn't just a, a, another word. Um, but they, uh, they were not living up to the meaning of their names. You see, Yodia means prosperous journey or sweet fragrance. And it's ironic that when she chose to be at odds with her dear sister in Christ, with, with Sintiki, her journey or her walk with the Lord would not end up being a prosperous one. She was heading down the wrong path. And rather than her influence on the church fellowship of being a sweet fragrance, it would just stink up the place. And so rather than being sweet perfume, her reputation was like smelly garbage. She was living opposite to her name. But Euodia was not the only problem child in the church fellowship. Syntyche was a big part of the problem as well. And her name means fortunate or good fortune. Her name was similar in meaning to Euodia's name, but it also meant affable, affable. Now, I had to look that one up. I don't use that word affable very much in day-to-day conversation. When was the last time you said affable? Not long ago, probably, huh? Uh, I, uh, I, I found out that affable means easy to approach and talk to. It means gracious and kind. And again, it's hugely ironic that in her relationship with Yodia, she no longer was affable. She was no longer approachable. She was no longer gracious and kind. Instead of her reputation being affable, it became a bit laughable, kind of in a bad way, because she was, op- she was behaving opposite to her name. And, and yet it was not a laughing matter. Rather than this whole situation being a fortunate one, it was becoming quite unfortunate in the way they were treating each other and the impact it had on the great church of Philippi. Not only were Yodia and Syntyche not living up to their names, they were living the opposite of their names. Now, you think about that. Uh, my name is David, and it means beloved. What's the opposite of beloved? Someone who's hated. I don't want to live a life where I'm hated. I want to live a beloved life. And I appreciate those of you through the years have shown your love to me and your appreciation. But you know, the greatest name that we can all live up to is the name of Christ. The book of Acts reveals that the followers of Christ were first called Christians in the town of Antioch. And uh, that's what the community, that's what the non-Christians called them. It wasn't a name that they called, that they uh, took for themselves. It reflected the reputation of the community. Christian literally means little Christ. And the church in Antioch was known for having people who were little Christs. They lived the same way that Jesus lived. They had the very character of Jesus. And, And Jesus said, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples when what? When you have love for one another. And so they were very loving. They saw the love of Christ in that church fellowship. And so the Christian Christians became uh, known as, as little Christ for the first time because of the way that they were living. 
Now, as people looked at Euodia and Syntyche, they were not seeing that Christian spirit. They weren't seeing little Christ. They were seeing worldliness. And there are two other people that Paul mentions here. One, he doesn't mention by name. He just gives a character reference. And uh, he simply calls him as a true yoke fellow, a teammate. Some translations use the word co-worker. But he had the same heart and same passion as the Apostle Paul. And, and some commentators think that they were referring to Luke because they think that Luke was, his hometown was um, there in Philippi. We don't know that for certain. Other people think it was Epaphroditus. But that doesn't make sense to me because Epaphroditus was with Paul. Paul wrote this when he was under house arrest. He was writing it from Rome. So why would he write a letter to Epaphroditus when Epaphroditus was right there? That doesn't make sense to me. We don't know who this true yoke fellow was. But like I said before, when you hear the word yoke fellow, you think of that verse where Jesus said, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am humble and gentle in heart. You know, think about that. How many of you are from a farming background? Not a whole lot. How many of you have seen uh, oxen yoked together or farm animals yoked together? Now, can you, imagine, can you imagine these two animals trying to work together if they're always out of step with each other? They'd be working against each other. They have to learn to pull with the same cadence, you know, and take the same steps. And, and that's what... What we learn from this true yoke fellow, we need to learn as believers to take steps together, to work together. And, and he needed to teach that to Yodia and Sentiki because they were out of step with each other. I'm glad Dave and Christy are here. Um, I'm always glad they're here. But uh, I remember a time where um, we went on a tandem bicycle ride with them. We, we didn't... We I didn't have a tandem. It wasn't Nancy and myself. But Dave and Christy were on a, a tandem bicycle. And I learned something new from Dave. He said to me, Dave, do you, do you know what people who are you know, really into tandem bicycle riding, do you know what they really call these things? I said, no, Dave, I, I don't know. He said they call them divorce machines. <laughs> you know, because if the husband and wife aren't in the same cadence, aren't doing the same Pedaling, pedaling power, you know, it's not that much fun. They're yoked together by that bicycle. And so, uh, kind of getting back to the subject here, Yodia and Sintiki had gotten out of step. They needed to get back in the same step, working together as a team. Uh, another person, though, is in, identified in these scriptures. His name is Clement. And uh, what does that name mean? Well, first of all, that's kind of an unusual name. How many of you have known a Clement? Could I see your hand? Some of you have. How many of you know a Clementine? Some of you, wow, okay, maybe it's not as unusual a name as I thought. The name Clement means merciful. And Paul wanted to have him help these two dear ladies get back to a healthy Christian relationship to be living the little Christ, Christian, true Christian um, relationship. And, and what would it take? Well, it would take a lot of things, but one of the things it would take is for him to show them the mercy of God and to, more importantly, help them learn to show mercy to one another. 
to be merciful towards each other. When people get sideways with each other, it's usually because there's a lack of mercy. And it's easy sometimes, I don't know if you've noticed, to give up on people when they stumble, when they slip up, when they're not living up to their Christian name, their Christian identity. Uh, maybe their reputation takes a big hit. They disappoint us. They disappoint other people. It's easy to give up on them. But what do we need to do? We need to be merciful. We need to be clements, if you will. And God shows us his mercy. And when we remember how God shows us his mercy, it motivates us to be merciful to others. How many of you have received the mercy of God? We all have, right? Aren't we glad we have received the mercy of God? Aren't we glad that he hasn't, you know, pronounced judgment and, and there's no way around that and, we, you know, we'd be all going to hell? That'd be horrible. We've received the mercy of God through the blood of Jesus Christ that he died on the cross for us. But, uh, you know, last Sunday we, we talked about a, a beatitude. You know, we're all called to be... Uh, reconcilers, if you will, help people to, with the ministry of reconciliation, help people to get together when they have a problem with each other. And we shared that uh, uh, beatitude, blessed are uh, the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God, to be a peacemaker. That's tough duty. But the word Clement, the name Clement, reminds us of another beatitude, and that beatitude is Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Any of us need mercy? Yeah, if you live here on the planet, you need mercy, right? Well, we have to learn how to be merciful to receive mercy. Now, um, by our attitude, though, when we're merciful to others, hopefully they can taste for themselves the very mercy of God. And hopefully it brings healing to people's hearts and brings healing to people's relationships. And, and so I finally finished the sermon that I wanted to, that I started a week ago. I, yeah, I finally got, but I, I want us to forge ahead to just two verses here. And um, Philippians 4, 4 through 5, uh, I want us just to focus on that. And hopefully it's going to be on the screen. It, nod your head if it's on the screen. Okay, you're nodding your head. Let's say it together. Always be full of joy in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice. Let everyone see that you are considerate in all you do. Remember, the Lord is coming soon. And that probably reminds you of a song, Rejoice in the Lord Always. Again, I say rejoice. Um, you know, I, when I look at that verse, I notice that Paul did not say, Rejoice just when you feel like it. Paul didn't say that. You know, some people wait for the feeling to overcome them. Oh, I'll rejoice when I feel like rejoicing. But we're to rejoice always. Not just some of us. Not just some of the time. We all are to rejoice in the Lord Always, all of us, all the time. That might sound like, you know, a way too idealistic. That might sound impossible. That might sound even ridiculous. There's so many things that can happen to us in life, and, and, and there's, it seems like there's no way we can rejoice. But Paul didn't say rejoice 
when, uh, when things around you are going well, when your happenings are good. He said what? He didn't say rejoice in your happenings. He said rejoice in the Lord. Uh, God is good, and he's treated us so good, and there's enough joy in that to last a lifetime all the way into eternity. What Jesus has done for us is so good, it's, it's worth a lifetime of rejoicing. And see, joy is a supernatural fruit of the Holy Spirit. So it's always available. Let me ask you, do you have the Holy Spirit? All right. Now, does the Holy Spirit just kind of come and go whenever he pleases out of your life? No. Uh, he's always there. You know, some people think, oh, well, I don't feel the Holy Spirit, so I, I'm, not, I'm just not going to rejoice. And, and um you know, the Holy Spirit is always with us. We have him all the time. He never goes away. He never leaves us. So joy from the Holy Spirit is available to us all the time. Amen? Amen? Regardless of circumstances. That takes faith, doesn't it? That takes a focus on God. Rather than focusing on the world... It takes focusing on Jesus. Paul didn't just tell us to rejoice in the Lord always. He modeled it for us. He lived it out in his own life. You know, when Paul first went to Philippi, he was thrown in prison for preaching Christ. Not only that, but he was beaten up. And, and you remember the story in the book of Acts? He was at around midnight. He, he was starting to sing praises to God, and all the prisoners in the jail were listening to him, and also the jailer was listening to him, and the jailer came to the Lord. He wasn't rejoicing in, in his circumstances. He didn't rejoice in how he felt physically because he was, he was hurting, but he was rejoicing in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and no matter what happened to him, the Lord was with him. He, he experienced the Lord's presence, and he rejoiced in that. You remember that verse where it says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's Jesus. That's God talking to us. God will never leave us. He'll never forsake us. No matter what happens to us, the Lord is with us. He's with us all the time, everywhere, no matter where, no matter what. His love and mercy and support and presence and power are always there, and, and Paul was connected into that presence of the Lord, and that's, I think, part of our problem. We're not always connected into the presence of God in our life, and, and some, some call this the sacred duty of being happy, not um, a worldly happiness, but a spiritual happiness, not a circumstantial happiness, but, um, if you will, a, a divine uh, happiness that comes from the, the very... Our very source is God, the Holy Spirit. Now, um, I came across a, a story of a lady who learned to uh, abide in God's presence. Joy comes from abiding in God's presence. And, and it's kind of a long story, but bear with me. Jacqueline was an elderly woman who lived to take care of her daughter who was wheelchair-bound. When her daughter died, Jacqueline not only lost her purpose for living, she also lost her living companion, and her cottage in the country seemed as empty as a broken eggshell. Occasionally, a friend would call or a note would arrive, but most of her time was spent in oppressive, ongoing solitude. 
Her health didn't allow her to circulate very much, and her best friends were now all in heaven. One day, Jacqueline's Bible opened to Philippians 4, 5, and four words struck her forcibly. The Lord is near. If so, thought Jacqueline, I should be more aware of it. Lord, she prayed, I'm going to pretend you're here all the time. No, no, forgive me for using that word. There's no pretending to be done. I'm going to use my God-given imagination to visualize how very present you really are. Help me ever remind myself of the reality of your nearness. So that evening as she retired, she said, I'm going to bed now, Lord. Will you please watch over me as I sleep? And the next morning, As she awakened, she said, Good morning, Lord. This is the day you've made. And sitting down with her hot tea, she read through the book of Philippians again, underlining verse 5. Then she prayed aloud for a very long time. At noon, she said, Now, Lord, let's watch the news on television so you can show me the things in this world I can pray for. And Jacqueline and the Lord watched the news together, and she prayed for flood victims in the Delta and a newly installed president in an African country and for a man sentenced to life imprisonment. At supper, she bowed her head and thanked the Lord for her food, but she didn't feel her prayers were traveling up to heaven. She felt instead she was talking to someone sitting across the table from her. Gradually, her attitude was transformed, her loneliness lessened, her joy increased, her fears diminished, and she never afterwards felt she was alone in the house. Jacqueline was learning how to abide in the presence. You see, when we abide in the presence of the Lord, there is joy in the presence of the Lord. J. Vernon McGee uh, made a personal observation. He said, there's no power in a Christian's life if, if he has no joy. And I thought, well, that's a nice, nice little observation that uh, J. Vernon McGee made from his many years of preaching in churches and looking at, you know, interfacing with a lot of Christians and all that. Okay, yeah. So he's had that experience. But then, you know, he backed that up with Scripture where he got that. Now, there's no power in a Christian's life if he has no joy. He was referencing, if you will, the story of Nehemiah and the nation of Israel, and they'd finished rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem. And and you'd think they'd be happy and they'd be celebrating. And, and Nehemiah invited Ezra the scribe, and he read the book of the law for several hours. And they had not heard the, the law of God read for decades. And so you'd think they'd be getting excited to hear God's word. But instead, they were weeping and they were crying because they saw how far they had fallen short of God's standards. And they saw how... Utterly stupid their forefathers had been by neglecting God's word. And all of the awful calamities, all the judgments that came upon their nation because they ignored God's word. And uh, they were foolish. And it brought upon them God's judgment. But what did Nehemiah do? He encouraged them. In Nehemiah 8, 9 through 10, he said, Nehemiah continued, Go and celebrate with a feast of choice foods and sweet drinks. And share gifts of food with people who have nothing prepared. This is a sacred day before the Lord, our God. Don't be dejected and sad. For what? For the joy of the Lord is your strength. Do you want power? Do you want strength? You have to have joy. God's power flows where God's joy 
flows. Joy and strength go together. Now, Paul moved on to a simple command that applied to Yodia and Syntyche. I'm, I'm wrapping it up here. I'm trying to leave some, some time for our brothers and sisters from Camp, uh, almost said Camp Sugar Pine, Sweetwater. And it applied to Yodia and Syntyche, and it applied to Clement. He tried to encourage these ladies to reconcile. New Living Translation said, let everyone see that you are what? You are considerate in all you do. That's verse 5. Uh, the King James uses the word moderation. Let everyone, Christians and non-Christians, see your moderation in all things. And when we think of moderation, we have something in our mind. But, but actually, um, it's a little bit different, uh, if you will, definition. Um, it, it applies to the, the thing that Yodi and Syntyche were arguing about. And, and Paul is saying, okay, you two lovely, dear Christian sisters, learn to be moderate with each other. Learn to be moderate with your opinions. Learn to be moderate with this issue that you're arguing about. You know, that word moderation is used only one time in the King James Bible. And, and many scholars believe that Paul actually coined a new term. It's not even found in classical Greek. They think that Paul came up with his own word. And, and they tried it. There's all kinds of definitions. To be, different scholars try to explain what that word means. It means gracious and kind, and it's a sweet reasonableness, it's consideration, it's the ability to give in to the wishes of others to sacrifice your rights, not because you're forced to, but because you're sympathetic and you're generous, you have a generous spirit. It's the opposite of stubbornness. And some people are thoughtless of others, but moderate people are thoughtful of others. It's being polite and gentle and reasonable and not being so strongly opinionated that you're unwilling to yield about unimportant matters. It's someone who's not so brittle that they don't know how to bend. It's being fair-minded. It's someone who's charitable towards a person's faults and merciful in judgment because you take the whole situation, maybe the whole history in view. It's the opposite of contention and self-seeking. And there's a whole lot of meaning in that one little word, moderation. And maybe a more modern definition, maybe one that we, uh, we hear more often, it's not as scholarly, but um, it's the ability to mellow out in a difficult situation, to chill. You know when you tell, tell someone to mellow out that you're using biblical terminology. Hey, can't you just chill a little bit? Or maybe I need to chill a little bit. Maybe I need to mellow out. It's a biblical word. And uh, Yodia and Syntyche needed to mellow out and chill. Uh, and, and we need, need to do the same thing when we're prone to get sideways with a person of a different opinion. I'm going to close with just two scriptures, and we'll read them real quickly. Titus 3, 2, because it talks about being able to mellow out. It talks about moderation. Paul was giving a command to Christians on the island of Crete, and it says they must not speak evil of anyone and they must avoid quarreling. Instead, they should be gentle or moderate and show true humility to everyone. People on Crete 
loved to argue. That was part of their culture. They just loved to argue all day long. Christians there needed to be a moderating influence. They did that by being moderate. James 3.17 also speaks of this, this thing. The wisdom that comes from heaven is, first of all, pure. It is also peace-loving, gentle at all times, willing to yield to others. It is full of mercy and good deeds. It shows no partiality and always sincere. You know, it says, be peace-loving and gentle at all times. That's that moderation again. And may God give us a spirit of consideration and moderation in our relationships with others. Maybe uh, especially with people that we think of them being bullheaded. They think of us as being bullheaded, you know, strongly opinionated. We need moderation. I'm not hearing any amens with that one. Um, and I believe that's how God wants to work in our lives. So I, I asked the ministers at the ministerial fellowship, how many of you guys know someone in your church who is strong in that area of moderation, being moderate? And there was a long pause, which told me that they were having a hard time coming up with anyone who was a strong example of someone who's moderate. You know, we were blessed in this chapel by a man that I think is strong in that area of moderation. His name was Anifus Parker, and he helped build this uh, building here and also the new wing over there on the side. And I've told this story before. They came to, you know, they stuck stuccoed the outside of this building. It used to be wood, but just for fire insulation, they stuccoed the outside of the building, and they put on new downspouts. And on this side were, were Anifus's downspouts, and I and a group of other volunteers were over here on this side putting in the downspouts. And Anifus kind of sauntered over to our side and looked at what we were doing. And he said, now this is consideration, this is moderation. They said, that's one way to do it. <laughs> he didn't say, you stupid idiot, how come you did it that way? You know, so I sauntered over here on this side and I noticed the right way of doing it. You know, you put the strap here, you put a screw in the middle, and you wrap the strap around the downspout and you put one screw right in the middle and it looks very tidy. I didn't do it that way. I didn't know that's the way you were supposed to do it. I put a screw over here and I kind of wrapped the thing around here like so and then I put a screw in here and another screw in the center and it doesn't look tidy at all. It just looks kind of dumb. But he was considerate. He was moderate. That's one way to do it. And I'll tell you, brothers and sisters, there are a lot of situations that arise in the church fellowship where maybe, maybe we know the right way of putting on a downspout strap. I don't know. But is it worth fighting about? Is it worth getting sideways with each other about? No, no, no. It's better just to say, that's one way to do it, and let it go. 